This is Hannah Rose and welcome to the Inspire Within podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to a brand new episode of Inspire Within. My name is Hannah Rose and I am your show host. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Fran Meyer. Fran is a super founder and is best known for co-founding and launching Match.com. She is also the founder of Trust Arc and CEO of BabyQuip, which appeared on Shark Tank in March of 2020. Fran is an accomplished serial entrepreneur, founder, and an inspiring woman in business, and I'm so excited to have her here today. Thank you, Fran, for being here. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Of course. Yeah. So what I typically like to do is have my guests talk a little bit about their background and their upbringing, because I think it really shapes, you know, the entrepreneur, the person that you are today. So where did you grow up? What was that like for you? And did you have any, you know, entrepreneurial role models during your upbringing? Uh, Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I grew up here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, which is a small town at 7,000 feet and very creative town. Lots of stuff always going on. And uh, my mom's family descends from the, the Spanish colonists, the indigenous people of the area. So there's a lot of culture and, and uh, you know, definitely grew up considering myself very much a, a, a Hispanic woman. And from New Mexico, I was lucky enough to go to Stanford. And this was about 1980. So, you know, while I was at Stanford, I went to business school there as well. Really, you know, we're seeing the emergence of the PC and all of that. Remember, this is a long time ago. <laughs> Here's a role model. My dad was in sales and he always talked to me about, you know, always be closing and how to be a good salesperson and the entrepreneurial part of being in sales. And I think I really like that. And, um, but, you know, I did not foresee that I would be doing what you know as I tell my kids then the internet happened and you know they don't they don't get it yeah for those of us who were you know when the internet happened in in let's call the mid-90s I was in my mid-30s and it really changed everything for sure yeah it must have been very different before the internet I can't even imagine what it's like to grow and kind of you know launch a business before social media and everything like that but I guess that's I even remember where there weren't spreadsheets. So (laughs) I know that's so crazy. So yeah, well, was match.com your first entrepreneurial venture or did you have something before that going on? A couple of things. I, I did, I ran the yogurt, the frozen yogurt store on the Stanford campus in the early eighties. I believe that was new too. So (laughs) I think I've always liked to kind of, uh, I'm attracted to what's new and shiny and you know, um, when match happened in I joined that team in 1994 um I had just seen the world wide web and AOL that year uh but I was doing marketing I was doing marketing at Clorox doing brand marketing then at that point I was doing membership marketing direct mail marketing at AAA and it turned out that those experiences of building brands and um direct direct um advertising to consumers was really, really great for the internet. And that background really helped me. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So for, you know, the story around Match, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. I know you guys were very early to market at that point. Now you take a look around and we have tons of dating websites and platforms. So what was that experience like for you starting off? Yeah, well, you know, it was pretty exciting. It was very, very small initial team. From the very beginning, I was in charge of Match. The company was actually trying to do classified advertising in other segments like autos and rent and things like that. But Match was mostly to be a proof of concept, but we are the ones that really survived. And the key to it, and again, I brought my marketing experience from both Clorox and AAA, was that we were trying to attract women. And the strategy was, if we could get women, the men would follow. Okay. And believe it or not, back then, women were less represented on the internet, you know, and, uh, and also that by focusing on women, we really kind of made it a clean, well-lit space. We focused on safety. We did all kinds of things that were beyond marketing, but actually going to the way the product worked. I'll give you one example. And people usually laugh at this one. Um, I'll ask people, have you ever done online dating? And everybody says, yeah, yeah. And then I'll say, have you ever had to enter your weight in pounds? Oh, wow. And nobody does, right? And that's because of me. When the the question came up, and remember, in the mid-90s, there'd be only, you know, first of all, there weren't photos, okay? There just weren't photos. Later, people could send in and we digitize and upload them. But really, digital cameras were were not, well, uh, people didn't have them. And so we had just a few questions because we wanted people to find matches. And a lot of those questions had to be about appearance, right? And so I knew that if we were focusing on women, women did not like to answer that question. They wanted to know body type. And that's what we went through. So even now, I I know that uh, another example was we made it a membership model. Mm-hmm. And the the proposal on the table was to charge 10 cents per contact or something like that. And there were a lot of reasons to do a membership model. You can upsell, you could cross promote, you could keep people on a subscription. But I also knew that women wouldn't like that. So I think a couple of those things that really came from an insight into who are we targeting? How will they feel about this? And really making that drive not just marketing decisions, but product decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so smart. And that's such an amazing idea at that point, too. I also can't believe that there either there was very limited pictures, you said, or no pictures at all to start off. That's so crazy to me, because I feel like, I mean, I'm not on dating apps anymore. But when I was, it was like, that's really the only thing you look at and really go after. So yeah, so let me tell you, the we were most people had dial up. Most people, right? had, yeah, had dial up. You know, do you even know what I'm talking about? I don't know what dial-up is now. Dial-up is you had to use your phone line to get on the internet. It was slow. Yeah. Okay. Most people in 1995, if they had internet access, it was dial-up. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. Yeah. And it was slow. So, so images had to be fairly light and yeah, it was a different world. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, yeah. So what's your take on, you know, online dating now and match.com now? Are you as involved with the business as you were? Do you more? No, I'm, I'm not involved at all. We sold okay. it uh, in 1998 and uh, I, I resisted it, but we sold it for less than $8 million. 
Wow. Okay. So, you know, that's kind of embarrassing. Uh, but that happens when you're a bit too early for a market. We did not know how good we had it until, you know, and frankly, a year later, it was sold again for $70 million. And I really was not any part of that transaction. So it was a mess. Um, it was a lesson learned. Um, you know, what I took away from that is, and the benefit of the hindsight, I probably should have led the investment group and raised the money myself. Um, and, you know, honestly, and this goes to one of the topics you want to talk about, I didn't have a lot of confidence or enough confidence to know that I could do it. And I was somewhat, I wish I had asked for help. I think had I looked to my network to, you know, to walk through, here's the issue, what should I be doing? I think probably somebody would have said, why don't you take it and raise some money yourself and take it to the next level? But I didn't do that. Later on at TrustArc, which was called Trustee, I had a chance to take it from nonprofit to for-profit. And this time I did ask for help. I did take it. I got what what I should have gotten out of it. So, you know, fortunately I had to do over. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of times it takes like going through something so major to realize what you either the opportunity that was missed or what you could have done better next time. And obviously you learned that lesson and applied it to your next venture. So that's really great. And do you yeah, all good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And do you think that like some of the either like lack of confidence or lack of asking for help in the beginning of Match.com and when you were ending your journey there was due to being a woman in business at the time or not having as much confidence in yourself? Yeah, I, I think the biggest issue facing many uh, female entrepreneurs is they don't have enough confidence and they don't have enough support. And they think they have to do it all themselves. They don't get an assistant. They are always feeling like they have to um, prove themselves. And, um, you know, there's been more than a few times I've said to a friend or another female entrepreneur, uh, okay, look at this problem. What would a guy do? And just changing that framing might mean they'll pick up the phone, write a shorter email, or do something else that, that is effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy that we even have to like shift our mindset to, you know, kind of relate to what a guy would do in a situation in business just to be able to kind of be effective in that way. But I mean, I think a lot of women in business and entrepreneurs look up to you as being like an original female founder who's made a name for yourself. And oh, you know, gee, man. <laughs> it's true, you know, like I definitely look up to you and I think that you're awesome. And I don't think a lot of women in business, at least you know, back then starting off, had that confidence to do a lot of the things that you did. So that's really great. Um, and I would love to talk about Baby Clip as well and your journey around that. I know you guys um, were on Shark Tank in March of 2020, which is a crazy year. Um, but yeah, would love to hear your journey about Baby Clip and just your story around that, if you could share. Sure. So in a lot of ways, Baby Clip reminds me of the early days of Match. You know, it's a marketplace business. It has the benefit of solving a real problem. I mean, one of the things I love about Match is even now I'll meet people who met on Match and, you know, I, I feel great about that, you know. So uh, the real problem is traveling with babies and all that bulky baby gear is just horrendously hard for families and somewhat of a disincentive to travel. And especially millennial and Gen Z parents, they really 
are valuing experiences. They want those vacations. They want those Instagram uh, moments. And, and, you know, they tell us all the time, we're a lifesaver. We saved the vacation. We came to the rescue. So really happy about that. So um, what happened is, as I left my last job at TrustArt in early 2012, I was still involved a bit. But um, I also, post-divorce, moved from Alameda, California, across the bay to, to San Francisco, literally five blocks away from Airbnb headquarters. Okay, and this is 2012, again, early. And I had just bought this house and Airbnb was sort of in the air, right? And that's what you get in San Francisco, you get the air <laughs> of all the early things. And I'm an early adopter, always have been. So I decided to rent the top two bedrooms on in my house out on Airbnb, almost on a lark, just to see how it would work. Yeah. And before you know it, I was making really good money. And I was getting great reviews. I bought a, a, another property here in Santa Fe, and, and that was great. And got me thinking, okay, what are these businesses? And Lyft and Uber were coming up around that time too. What are these businesses that are going to really leverage gig economy people and really raise some money and change the way Airbnb was changing travel. Where Where is there a business in here? And at that point, you were already seeing a lot of property management companies emerge and cleaning companies. But I met a gal here in Santa Fe who was doing a baby gear rental business, doing about $30,000 a year. Santa Fe is a destination, but, you know, it's far from Anaheim or Orlando for that matter, right? And I took a look at it and we had a meeting. And on our first meeting, I said, I should be your CEO. <laughs> and it took a few months before that happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, she had to be convinced I really could take it somewhere and all of that. And um, we formed it in May of 2016. I put some of my own money in at first to see how hard is it to recruit what we call quality providers. These are the moms mostly who owned the gear and rented on our platform and how hard would it be to generate demand? And what we found is that there was a lot of pent up demand. There weren't very many com competitors, mostly mom and pops in, in tourist uh, destinations and certainly around theme parks and things like that. And nobody had tried to build a national brand. And, you know, I think my superpower, if, if, if you were, if you could, is, um, you know, building trusted brands. And when you're dealing with babies, trust, cleanliness, safety, all those things are really, really important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's, yeah. So uh, getting to Shark Tank. So in 2017, the, uh, the gal who started it, she left. My son, Joe, had spent five years at Accenture doing tech and he joined the team. So that was kind of great to work with my grown-up son who you know there's not a lot of mom's son teams yeah you know, so. that's amazing and um sometime in 2018 we got an email from shark tank saying that one of their producers or somebody had used us in rochester i mean you know i was like okay rochester fine that's great yeah. and they invited us to apply and of course it you know rounds and rounds of giving them more information showing what your business is, practicing your pitch. They encourage us to get a pack meal, like a real life pack meal on the stage 
Uh, so we could say, you need a pack mule to carry all this baby gear. Yeah. But it was real fun. My son and I uh, did it together. And, um, you know, we're, we were in there for 35, 40 minutes. It was, it turned out to be about eight to 10 minutes finally when it aired. And the trick is what you want is to, you know, get picked, get filmed, get aired. We didn't get any money from it. Mr. Wonderful and I went back and forth. Uh, it was kind of fun, but we weren't called roaches. You know, I think they all got yeah. that um, experienced entrepreneur in the business has, uh, is really uh, solving a need. The only bummer about the whole thing was it aired on March 6, 2020. It was the last party almost anybody went to for like two years. So I had a party at my house. Oh, wow. And instead of the business going up as we expected, yeah. The cancellations and everything happened right after that. Yeah, that's so crazy. What like crazy timing all that is too. So when exactly did you guys record? And then you said it was March 6, 2020 that it was aired. Yeah, we recorded in June of 2019 and aired on March 6, 2020. That's crazy timing. And how, I mean, that experience sounds so awesome too, but how was the effect of the pandemic on Baby Quip? You know, launching a startup is already hard enough in itself. And then, you know, the pandemic affected everything. So what was that experience like for you and your business? You know, at first it was horrible. I mean, you know, we were like, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, you know, um, but we did have some, some things going for us. I had already raised some money. And so we had a good amount of money in the bank. Uh, the business didn't go to zero, went down maybe 40%. So we still had something. We really cut back our marketing expenditures, especially and the whole team took uh, uh, pay cuts, uh, not too draconian, but, you know, we had to kind of keep the burn. Then we burned low. Then we we got some of the government money, which was the first time in my life I've ever gotten assistance like that. I was, And it was easy. You know, it was yeah. kind of amazing. Yeah. And by the time it got to February of 2021, we were clearly on the upswing, you know, mostly starting in Florida, but... By the end of 2021, we did two times the business we did in 2019. And this year so far, we're doing two times what we did in 2021. And one of the things that venture capitalists will say is that when a company emerges from a, you know, big um, punch in the gut or, a, you know, a big setback and they emerge from it, they're usually stronger and can take the lead in the marketplace. And I think that's what we did. Yeah. Well, congratulations on doing better than you've done, you know, last year too. That's really amazing to hear that you made a comeback like that. So that's really awesome. Yeah, um, we're pretty excited. I want to be in one of those Shark Tank uh, videos, you know, what are they doing now? <laughs> yeah, they should reach out to you. Yeah. Or be yeah. back on the show again. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah, but yeah, so would love to hear, you know, any advice, you know, that you have for people that are looking to create their own startup or own business and, you know, might be afraid to take that first step. I know that, you know, a lot of people have ideas, but it's hard to execute them or figure out what it is you do first. So what is your take on that and what would your, your advice be around that? Yeah, I talk a lot about this and, you know, I can't tell you how many people who have come to me and said, I thought about that idea, you know, the baby quip idea and didn't do anything. Right. So, um, you know, 
it, it can be very challenging to start something. Um, but I think you have to have the confidence of your conviction, the confidence of your idea. And one of the, you know, when you start looking at something, like when I started looking at Babyquip, I took a look, okay, what are the current options in the marketplace? And like I said, there were some mom and pops, but there's also borrowing from friends. There's buying and dumping. Unfortunately, a lot of people do that. Uh, you know, they go like to Hawaii and they buy a car seat and they leave it there. That's crazy. Um, crazy, right? Um, so taking a look at the competitive set, also taking a look at what your um, experience and your expertise is in. And a lot of female founders really come from uh, after many deep years in a profession or in a segment of the market where they really know it well. And it could be aimed at families or children, but it also could be in medical. It could be in something something not gendered at all. But they have deep experience that they bring to the problem. So they really understand the problem and can go after it. I think one of the important things I see missing a lot when I talk to entrepreneurs or look at business plans is, is the companies or the, the founders don't have a really good target about who are they going after? Who is their target market? What makes that target really good? How can they activate that target to make a different decision? Um, then I think, you know, to the extent that you have your own money, that can help because you can hire the help or pay for the paid media and things like that. Um, and hopefully, you know, couples can trade off who's going to be entrepreneurial and who's going to get the benefits of the regular paycheck. Yeah. You know? So it's kind of helpful if you could have that kind of dynamic going on. Um, I also highly recommend that, and I think most colleges, communities have some sort of pre-accelerator or incubator or some resources that you can avail to fine tune your business plan, fine tune your pitch. And, and that's what, what you could do. I have to say, I was fortunate by the time I started out with Babyquip, you know, I had raised money before, I had started companies before, I had built brands before. It, you know, it helped me not only in getting more money, but also in recruiting the people. And, you know, but but I think the, the point here is use every advantage that you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really great advice. Thank you. And then, you know, another thing I like to ask too, especially to entrepreneurs and people that have founded something or started their own business is kind of like the difference not the difference, but just like the preference between a nine to five or uh, starting your own thing. And do you think that like young people in business should be in corporate for a while before they start something of their own and really learn from others before they, you know, go after it on their yeah, own? I mean, I think that can really help. On the other hand, it probably depends on the idea and how fast you want to get to market. Um, you know, after I did Mash.com, I never had a typical corporate job after that. And I think once you taste it, it's kind of hard to get away from startups. And, and it's not, you know, it's great to have a win. And, you know, I I haven't had the big home run, but I've, you know, done pretty well with my, with my different companies overall. Um, but it's not so much about that. It's more about seeing your ideas come alive, building a team, having an impact, making a difference to the people who are using your products or services. You know, it's all of that that's kind of exciting. I actually think that for women, 
uh, being an entrepreneur, once once you, especially once you kind of get some momentum, it's easier to some extent with family because, you know, you're the boss. You can decide what hours you want to work, when you want to really push. And um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think that flexibility and that flexibility goes to what kinds of projects do you really want to work, work on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think there's, yeah, I definitely hear you on all of that. And I think that there are a lot of pros to being an entrepreneur if you want to start a family and kind of have that balance and creating your own hours and everything too. So thank you for your take on that. I appreciate it. And, you know, just would love for you to leave us off with where you see Baby Quip going the next couple of years and where you see yourself professionally, if you have any goals in mind or want to kind of leave us off with anything on that note. Okay, great. Well, I think Babyquip is very much on a, on a big growth spurt right now. And, um, you know, we're also potentially seeing, you know, a recession ahead of us. So I'm thinking about what strategies we could do to not only take advantage of that, but also to grow through that. We are seeing that families have a lot of problems with traveling. So the baby gears one, but a lot of families do cross-generational challenge travel or travel with our pets. So we're looking at how we can help them with those kinds of things. I think there's some opportunities. We have a cleaning business where we clean car seats and strollers for local families. And that's kind of exciting too. So, um, and, you know, we're in US and Canada, starting to be in Mexico and the Caribbean, looking to expand beyond uh, those borders to really help families everywhere. So lots of exciting stuff. Um, not sure where things are going to go in the next few years, but when I decide to leave Baby Quip or Baby Quip leaves me in some way, um, I'd like to probably work with some um, incubators, accelerators, and other ways I can help, uh, especially female founders, get off the, off the ground. Amazing. That's so great to hear. And I love that you are looking to give back too. And I'm not a mom yet, but one day when I am, I will definitely use baby quip and I look forward to it. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Fran. It's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope to stay connected with you. Okay. Thanks, Helen. Me too. You take care. You too.